0: I need you to like musicals, I need you to like musicals, I need you to like musicals. I know you think they're sappy and bland, and you hated La La Land, but I gotta make you understand, they can be profound and beautiful, so I need you to like musicals.
1: Damn Mrs. Pierce, damn the coffee, and damn you, hello, welcome to I Need You to Like Musicals. Episode 6 We're going way back today Into uh, The golden era of musical theater Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about the setup today It's very unusual It's 8.26pm I'm recording this in the evening Which uh, I've never done before Um, Now the problem with this uh, Is uh, my my little Podcast, my pre-podcast ritual Involves The rapid consumption of an energy drink It's just sort of a a thing that I've put into place since the beginning. And uh, to make matters worse, I I did take my dose of Adderall today uh, at noon, later than usual. So I am not planning on getting any kind of sleep this evening, even though I have to get up early for school in the morning. We'll see how this all shakes out. Maybe this will tire me out a little bit. Uh, We'll see. Before we get into this week's shows, uh, I would like to share something with you from one of my many... Pandemic shelter-at-home projects. Basically, uh, shortly after the shutdown, uh, I had just uh, started using a proper USB microphone, and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about Carousel, the musical, and how insane it might be to revive Carousel in our modern era and wondered about like what they might cut out of it. So I thought at the time that it would be real funny to make a woke version of the song soliloquy. And I'd like to uh, share a little of it Not the whole thing, it's a abbreviated version of the very long song soliloquy, but uh, I, this is what that would sound like, the woke version.
0: My boy Bill, I will see that we keep him alive. I will. My boy Bill, he will get love and learn how to thrive. Will Bill. He'll thrive with his heart so full He'll decide just what he wants to be And you won't see nobody pressure him Into toxic masculinity No right-wing conservative Regressive chauvinist bastard Will bully him Wait a minute What if he Is a she Or a they I better save money before it comes and learn how to be bourgeois but I certainly won't turn to violence or break the law. I'll learn Listen and search for books With advice for expectant dads I probably should stop hitting Julie Cause domestic violence is bad I'll work hard and own up And act like a grown up To be a decent dad
1: No need to thank me, that was the woke version of Soliloquy. Back to the matter at hand. Um, today's shows have a lot of things in common. They're from roughly the same time period. I mean, they were on Broadway in roughly the same time period. But, um, t- today's shows are both very mean towards womankind. Uh, I, and I feel like I will be able to talk about this without sounding like um, a white knight, posturing male feminist. If I don't succeed at that, I'm sure you will let me know, podcast audience. That's the one thing I love so much about the audience of I need you to like musicals is the uh, the dialogue that we have. Uh, you know. So anyway, um, before we do that, I want to get to some news. Um, here we are. So this is not really news. Uh, it's news to me. I was late to the party on this. There is, if you're not familiar with this, maybe it'll be news to you and you'll love it as much as I'm loving it. There is an Instagram account called Sondheim Letters. And for those of you who don't know, the great Stephen Sondheim, who died in late 2021, was a, a, an avid letter writer and letter responder to he, he, he responded to pretty much anyone who ever wrote him a letter. So there is an Instagram account de- uh, devoted to um, b- b- screenshots of uh, or pictures of uh, letters. And they're, they all look like they've been written on typewriters, even the ones from like 2015 and so on. Um, and my favorite one so far is a letter uh, written in response to somebody anonymous saying, Dear so-and-so, I am not the composer of a chorus line. Sorry, Stephen Sondheim. So uh, he, he even uh, deigns to answer ridiculous letters, apparently. Or did. He's no longer with us. So that's our news for today. Sondheim letters. That's all we got. Let's get into our shows. Let's talk first about the classic Learner and low musical, My Fair Lady. I saw My Fair Lady. I sort of enjoyed it. That's a quote from Merrily We Roll Along. So, um, My Fair Lady, let's talk about it. This is adapted from a play by the great George Bernard Shaw, but to really get to the bottom of My Fair Lady, we have to go back even earlier than that. We have to go back to ancient Greece and the myth of Pygmalion and Galatia. Uh, there's a nice painting of this by somebody who does paintings or did paintings at some point in uh, the course of human events Pygmalion is a sculptor who uh, falls in love with his own sculpture Galatia and around the turn of the century in England, the turn of the last century, do you say that? If it's, okay, the 1800s into the 1900s. Let's not uh, fuck around here. That This myth, for whatever reason, was very popular in England around that time. There were a lot of versions of that being adapted. Gilbert and Sullivan took a crack at it. So did a bunch of other playwrights in England. So George Bernard Shaw, uh, he takes it upon himself to write a play called Pygmalion. Um... But he makes it about a sort of phonetics professor, a dialectician named Henry Higgins, who crafts, molds his own sculptor in the form of a uh, low-born... Cockney woman making uh teaching her to speak beautifully and then presenting her to you know you've all seen My Fair Lady why am I even going on uh on and on he writes this play he starts writing it in 1912 and listen I'm going to tell him the same thing that I told the residents of River City and Music Man stay off the Titanic it's not a good idea it's not going to end well there aren't enough lifeboats let's go ahead and stay home um don't go to uh, New York and then England I think that's how it works right it started in New York I don't remember Um, here's the thing about Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw I've read it I was curious enough about Pygmalion in middle school to read it that's impressive right it goes down smooth because the lion's share of the dialogue in Pygmalion is in My Fair Lady so if you're already a devotee of My Fair Lady reading Pygmalion is a breeze because uh, you're just reading what you've heard many times in the uh, motion picture, or in the musical, or, uh, and so on. The primary differences between um, Pygmalion and My Fair Lady are, well, first of all, the ending, which we'll talk about later, maybe when we get to the end of the story here. But also, I think uh, the Eynsford Hills are very different in the Shaw play. In the musical, you know, the, I, 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 you get the sense that Freddy is not, like, uh, you know, a successful man. Like the, the, But they are high-born. Like, they're fancy and upper-class. He's got very nice top hats on. In the original play, they're described as uh, superficial social climbers eking out a life in, quote-unquote, genteel poverty. So that whole first scene where they're hailing a cab, it's like they can barely afford that cab. And Freddy is a real loser, He's, like, too timid to even hail the cab. And uh, so there's that. Uh, it's a sort of a middle ground between the Higginses and the Doolittles are the Einsford Hills. So, um, the 1956 musical, My Fair Lady, which is the musical we're here to talk about, was written by Alan J. Lerner. He wrote the book and the lyrics. And Frederick Lowe, um, he wrote the music. Now, their adaptation, they actually were adapting the film adaptation of Pygmalion that was made in 1938, with a screenplay that uh, George Bernard Shaw uh, worked on uh, with the filmmakers. And there are some additions from that that were not in the original play. This is where you get the whole idea of uh, these speech exercises, such as the rain in Spain stayed... I just failed the speech test The rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain And, of course, that old favorite uh, In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire Hurricanes hardly ever happen George Bernard Shaw refused in his lifetime To let Pygmalion be turned into a musical Because people tried It was his most accessible, famous play that he had ever written but he didn't want it to be made into a musical because somebody made a shitty operetta of one of his plays back in 1908 called The Chocolate Soldier and that kind of burned him on the whole idea well, great news in 1950, George Bernard Shaw dies so anyone can do whatever the fuck they want more or less Um, there's an autobiography by Alan J. Lerner where he tells a lot of these stories and it's called The Street Where I Live I'm going to tell you something about this book I've read it I'm very seasoned in today's uh, first musical, My Fair Lady. I don't know why I was so interested in it, but as a middle schooler, I was very interested in it. Um, Lerner and Lowe, when they start writing My Fair Lady, they are already in the big time. They have already done Brigadoon um, and Paint Your Wagon, which is garbage, uh, if you ask me. Uh, Boy, oh boy. I'm not really familiar with Brigadoon, but Paint Your Wagon, uh, that, that one is rough. Alan J. Lerner wrote the screenplay for American in Paris uh, before this also, I should tell you that. Anyway, um, they don't want to, once they start writing it, they're like, this could never work as a musical because it violates the three rules of a musical. Ugh, you know how I feel about rules. Thankfully, the rules have changed, but some of them are even stupider than they were back then. Here are the rules that Pygmalion violates that makes it hard to become a musical. The main story is not a love story. Okay. Uh number two, no subplot or secondary love story. As if it was, weren't bad enough, there's no main love story. There's no secondary love story. What the fuck are we supposed to do? Nobody loves anybody here. And the third problem, no room for an ensemble. So they give up on it, Lerner and Lowe. They say, fuck this, we can't do it. Two years later, the producer who brought the idea to them in the first place dies. And it gives Alan J. Lerner the idea, why don't we start doing this again? He reads the guy's obituary and he's like, oh, that's the guy that had the idea to make Pygmalion into a musical. Let, let's give that another shot. Um, and, and they realize, well, fuck it. We can just change the story. <laughs> we can, uh, you know, move things around and make it more of a musical, which is what they do. Um, now, around the time that they start doing this, they get word that uh, the bank that owns the rights to this, uh, MGM, is trying to. You know, seek the rights. And there's pressuring Alan J. Lerner. They're saying, don't you challenge us because we're fucking MGM. Alan J. Lerner is not going to be bullied by some goddamn movie studio. So he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to write this thing without having the rights, but we're going to do it really fast so that the bank who owns the rights will have no choice but to sell us the rights and not MGM, not Metro Gold and Mayor. So they wrote it, hired designers, and cast it. In five months. I shit you not. My Fair Lady. Five months. That's pretty cool. The first casting decisions they make are to cast Noel Coward as Henry Higgins and Mary Martin as Eliza Doolittle. Those are bad ideas. Luckily, they don't stick with them. Hey, I mean, you know, we end up with Rex Harrison and you know, a, a, a newcomer, an unknown at the time, Julie Andrews. And they, 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 they seem pretty indispensable now, but maybe it would have been a totally different thing with Noel Coward and Mary Martin. I feel like it would have sucked, but uh, who knows. It's a big hit. Everyone calls it the perfect musical. It uh, becomes the longest-running musical up to that point. I think it was beaten by Fiddler on the Roof. Maybe Hello, Dolly. I don't know how it works with revivals. Like, I don't know if you count the revival performances in to the tally for longest running or most performances. Anyway. Inevitably, they need to make a Hollywood film out of this thing. Now, I know we talked last week about the film version of The Music Man, where Jack Warner got his grubby little hands in there and said we cannot cast... Robert Preston is the lead of Music Man the movie because he's, you know, people don't know who he is. We need a star. We need to get Sinatra in there. And then he got cucked by, uh, what's his name, Meredith Wilson. He said, hey, no, fuck you. You can't make it without him. Well, Jack Warner Jack gets his way this time. He wins this particular battle because they want to cast Julie Andrews. And he says, fuck that. No one knows who the fuck Julie Andrews is. Nobody that doesn't live in a fucking walk-up in Soho knows who Julie Andrews is. America doesn't know who she is. I'm not putting her as the lead in the movie. We're going to put Audrey Hepburn in there. She's got star power. So it's quite outrageous, quite a controversy, because Julie Andrews was considered so perfect in the role of Eliza Doolittle that, uh, but she gets the last laugh because that very same year she stars in Mary Pippin. Mary, what? Mary Pippin? I'd like to see that. That's a nice mashup. Mary Poppins. And she wins the Oscar over, what's her name? So anyway, um, Alan J. Lerner does not like the film. He didn't like it when he saw it. didn't like the casting. He didn't like the fact that they didn't film it in London, but they filmed it all on the Warner Brothers lot. He thought that was some bullshit. But it was a huge hit. It won eight Oscars, including Best Picture, and Best Actor for Rex Harrison, and Best Director for George Cukor. I should have figured out how to pronounce that name before I started this podcast. Let's say Cukor. I'm going to say it different each time. I don't think I'm going to say his name a lot of times, so it's not going to be an issue. This is something I didn't know when I was researching Pygmalion, Um, I apparently several teen movies are based on Pygmalion. I thought that She's All That was based on The Taming of the Shrew. Now I know what you're going to say, Chris, uh, obviously 10 Things I Hate About You is the teen movie that's based on The Taming of the Shrew. Okay, fine, I thought She's All That was also, so sue me. I didn't get the fucking reference, but She's All That is based on Pygmalion, and of course, way after my time, another team movie called The Duff, which stands for uh, Designated Ugly Fat Friend, that is also apparently based on Pygmalion, as are several other things. But, you know, it makes you wonder, like, is it based on Pygmalion the play or Pygmalion the myth, what's going on, who cares? Let's get into the actual musical here. So, the way into this one, the entry point is definitely the movie. The movie in 1964, It's great. I like it a lot. Sorry. It's a close faithful adaptation. It does a really nice job of staying theatrical, but also letting moviness happen where it needs to be movie-ish. And maybe it's me, but I find this movie highly entertaining. I think it holds up uh, today. And I know literally today because today is the day I watched it. I think it holds up mostly due to the great performances. Let's talk about those performances. Rex Harrison, the goat. Okay, so but real quick and this is theme-wise. So Henry Higgins, let's just start with the, pre- the the premise here. Henry Higgins is a enormous asshole. I of course he is. I found the assholery of Henry Higgins very funny in this rewatch. I also found it very funny when I was a kid. What does that say about me? I think that my mother and my sister signaled to me that this was something funny at first, and I had to get into the swing of it. I cannot deny now that it makes me laugh. And I... i Is that okay? I look back at a lot of my... Um, the characters from movies that were my heroes when I was younger. My cinematic heroes. And they're all... Dicks. Um... If you enjoyed John Cusack movies, for instance, in the 80s and 90s, I got news for you. All of his uh, romantic comedy lead characters are just awful, especially uh, High Fidelity. And I mean awful in the sense that the characters are uh, bad guys. Not that the movies aren't good or that the performance isn't good, but... Uh, you know, Jack Nicholson roles. It's like, same thing. I, mean, I think maybe that maybe it's like a teenage boy thing, and a lot of us have aspects of us as men that are still tied to our teenage boyness. But I do realize now that I grew up delighted by asshole male characters. I don't think this has served me well out in the world. But um, Rex Harrison in this is delightful. Every word he utters on screen, is wonderful to uh, I have so much fun watching it. I don't want to see anyone else play Henry Higgins. Fuck Jonathan Price. You know, respectfully, he's, he does a nice job at things, but uh, I've never really seen anyone else do it. I I saw clips of him in that Hey, Mr. Producer bullshit, and it's fine. Okay, he's a talented, erudite uh, seeming man, but it's all about Rex Harrison. This is his role. This is Bernadette Peters' level. Uh, his role. No one else can do it. Now. I probably, if I had seen Julie Andrews in the original cast, would have thought the same about her. But I didn't. I familiarized myself with the movie. And Audrey Hepburn, I think, is very good in this. Um, I, and I know it's a dick part not to give the part to Julie Andrews. What's weird to me about Audrey Hepburn in this is how... If you ever watch interviews with her or footage of her at award ceremonies, she is so fragile and soft-spoken that you can't really, and like has an accent, like you can't imagine her <laughs> um, delivering this performance. And maybe I just don't understand how actors are good actors, but I don't know, seems weird to me. Maybe that's a whole other performance, her at those award ceremonies, I don't know. Side note, my aunt played the lead role in this at Hollywood High School in the mid-60s, and a film executive was in the audience and offered her a three-picture deal. It was another time. I, uh, you know, I, that you don't hear stories about that happening anymore these days, but that always blows my mind every time it comes up because, uh, I guess like back then, being in show business, you didn't just assume that everybody you met idealized being in show business. You're like, oh, this uh, young man is eager to go to Hollywood and make a name for himself. And you're like, oh, really? Stop by my office. We may have mutual interests. It's not that way anymore obviously uh anyway i like the movie of my fair lady dares to be an epic like it's a super long film and it's an epic and it's very expensive even though it mostly takes place in living rooms i like that about it it's a little chamber drama comedy chamber dramedy whatever there uh so let's let's get into it piece by piece here it's got the thing that is in all movie musicals, movie musicals from the 60s where you have to sit through an overture while uh, there are pictures of colors and flowers. <laughs> then we see some people in London. We see the poor and the rich, uh, the rich people. And we get to uh, Eliza Doolittle. She's got her flowers. And then some guy, while she's talking to Pickering, this old man Pickering, some guy says, uh, there's a... There's a man down there on the other side of that pillar taking down every bleeding word you're saying. I didn't know what that meant at first when I first saw this. And then later, what's the commotion? Because she freaks out when she hears this. What's the the problem? And someone says, there's a tech taking her down. I don't understand this jargon. I do now. I'm just saying um, I didn't know what any of that meant. And then he reveals himself to be Henry Higgins, and he's as speechologist. I don't know what the fuck his job title is. I've used like three already. He's a fucking phonetics, whatever. He's a dialectician. And um, he does a little party trick with all the people in the street where he can detect where they were all born. And then he gets to Pickering. Oh, where's this guy from? And he names three, th- I don't forget what he says, Oxford, another one, and India. And he fing- he can detect this in his voice just because Pickering visited India, or spent time there. Which is uh, cool, that's impressive. It reminds me of um, Russell Crowe's character in The Insider. If you've ever seen that movie, that's a great movie, The Insider, about the 60 Minutes uh, thing with the guy, with, uh, the cigarette whistleblower. He has a weird accent in that movie, where he's kind of Southern, but also not Southern. And I heard Russell Crowe talking about this recently. It was because in researching this guy, like the real guy he was portraying, this guy like was born in the South but spent time in Manhattan and sp- then spent time in Japan. So it's like he's got this weird hybrid accent that does all of those. So Henry Hickens would have had a field day with uh, whatever his character. Jeffrey Wygand. Oh, man. I've seen The Insider a lot of times. I know the name of the character. Jeffrey Wygand. Uh should have uh, sat down with Henry Higgins. We should have seen if Henry Higgins could have figured that one out. Henry Higgins sings a song called Why Can't the English Teach Their Children How to Speak? And um, I guess one question that this song raises is like, why is this such a bad thing that there's all this variation? Is that obvious? I mean, it's uh, people understand it now and accept it now. But, um, you know, later on, like when he meets Alfred Doolittle, he's kind of impressed by his... Uh, native woodnotes wild in the way that he speaks, I'm willing to tell you, I'm wanting to tell you, I'm waiting to tell you, his natural native rhetoric. So why would he want to get rid of that if he's so um, charmed by it in Alfred Doolittle? You would think that uh, a guy that studies different dialects would not want to (laughs) blow them all up and make everybody speak the same. Kind of a paradox. Here's a fun behind-the-scenes fact. Rex Harrison may have been an asshole in real life, and, and a few things point to this. One of these... Um, this is actually kind of cool. is a bad example of that. He refused to pre-record his singing, or his speak singing, rather. He really... Uh, re- he led the way for dads who say, like, Oh, I... I can kind of sing, but Rex Harrison doesn't sing, so I can just talk my way through the song. He talks his way through many of these songs, although he is able to carry a tune when he wants to. But he would not pre-record his songs because he said he never did a song the same way twice. You know, he needed to riff and do it his own way. So he was adamant about this, so they, they put a wireless mic on him. I love that. It works. I think it's great. They should do that in more movie musicals. There's a lot of movie musicals where it just really looks like a lip sync situation. But it doesn't look that way here. And it sounds good. It sounds uh, authentic. I like it. The song Wouldn't It Be Loverly is a big hit from the show. I do wonder, and please uh, understand that I may be wrong about this and about absolutely everything that I say that the, the the uh i want of this song ugh, it's a musical theater i want song does seem to be colored a bit by american class mobility mentality that's another thing alan j lerner is american he is not british and um one of the differences between class in america and class in the united kingdom is that uh, in America, we think that we can work our way up Horatio Alger style, whereas there is more working class pride in England. So this idea of this song where, well, really, all that Eliza is really asking for is a room with a little bit of fucking heat and uh, someone to hang out with. So it's actually not that big of a... And her big goal is to work in a florist's shop. Like she's not trying to be president of the United fucking state, or uh, tr- the Queen, <laughs> Jesus. She's not trying to be Queen. She's just trying to uh, get a little extra cheese on her Whopper. To quote um, Chris Rock. Anyway, um, where was I? Wouldn't it be lovely? It's uh, very catchy. Now Audrey Hepburn is not doing her own singing. This is well known, well documented. Her songs are sung by Marnie Nixon, who was the ghost singer of the 20th century. She sang uh, the songs for Eliza Doodle and this. She sang the songs for Maria in the film of West Side Story. Natalie Wood could not sing. And I think it may have been the same situation where she did sing. And then after the fact, the filmmakers were like, this isn't good enough, guys. <laughs> and they couldn't do the trick that they do now with uh, or that they did 20 years ago with Ewan McGregor's voice where they uh, tune the shit out of it, where it sounds like an alien. They just said, we got to have some lady sing over her. This sounds like shit. Uh, Also, The King and I. She sang for The Lady and The King and I. I forget what that actress's name is, Uh, but there you go. Alfred Doolittle comes on the scene, her father wearing a very strange hat. My girlfriend and I, my girlfriend uh, remembered that hat very well. My girlfriend, this is the one musical that my girlfriend came to the relationship with it already under her belt. She watched this movie a lot as a child, and so it was fun to see her sing along to some of the songs. Um, she was. She's fascinated by the hat that Alfred Doolittle wears, and if you look it up, it's in the original Shaw. It's a hat that a dustman wears. It covers his neck and his shoulders, because a dustman that's up there in a chimney, he certainly doesn't want to get dust on his neck and shoulders. I mean, his f- f- chest, who cares? In his face, you know, that's a mark of pride, but please not on the neck and shoulders. How will we ever get it off? I'm editorializing a little bit there. I don't know if that's all true. The movie does a thing. I'm not sure if they do in the play. It's very theatrical, but uh, it looks very cool in the movie where they populate the streets in those three groups, like one at a time where a bunch of people come on and then freeze and then a bunch more people come on and then freeze and then, and it does not seem to be movie uh frame freezing freeze framing but the actual people pretending to be frozen uh a la the truman show and uh i don't know i like it i there may be a lot of aspects of this movie that i like because i grew up watching it so many times uh these are clearly friendlier london streets than the ones that we saw in oliver a few weeks ago Uh, and this is a nice, uh, who will buy this wonderful morning, but we don't have to suffer through that endless song. The flowers look so fucking fake. I didn't notice that till watching it this time. If you ever watch the movie of My Fair Lady, check out the stems of the flowers and you tell me those are real flowers and not plastic fucking flowers. Um... We finally get into the home of Henry Higgins, which is gorgeous, and it's exactly how I idealize my own uh, dream home. I would love to live in Henry's Higgins's <laughs> Henry Higgins's house. Um, I also like I love the work that Higgins does in phonetics and vowels. I love all of the little phonographs he has everywhere, the machines, the thing that he does with you do the H's into the thing, and then the flame and the mirror. This is my dream life. I want to be Henry Higgins, except preferably with some Wi-Fi. If we could work that out, if I could have Henry Higgins' house, at least his study and his library, I just want that. I got to get that, but make sure it still has Wi-Fi. And I still have the ability to uh, plug this microphone into this podcast and talk to myself. Then I will be truly content. That is my idea of a utopian universe. This is uh, the scene where Eliza comes and they negotiate the thing is a great scene. It's got laugh out loud, funny lines. But let's be honest, Mrs. Pierce should be fired. Like she's way too familiar with her boss. And, you know, I'm not uh, trying to reinforce the chauvinism in my fair lady by talking shit about Mrs. Pierce. Um, I am pro-Eliza all the way. Mrs. Pierce is a pain in the ass. And I don't know how it worked when you had the head of your house. I don't even know what her, her title is, if she's the head maid or the head mistress, or that's weird to call her head mistress. But like, are you? is the lady, if you live alone, if you're a confirmed old bachelor, unlikely to remain so, is the woman that is in charge of your staff, is she allowed to tell you what to do? Because I wouldn't hang with that. I would give her some warnings and be like listen mrs pierce i appreciate your input but can you keep it to yourself or can you like write me a letter or something i'm kind of trying to do something right now and you're here with your you know concern and running your mouth Uh, knock it off and um anyway in this scene higgins says some pretty cruel things (laughs) to eliza and about her in front of her like she'll only drink if you give her money (laughs) And, uh, don't you, isn't it pretty she has feelings? And it's like, Oh, I don't think so. No feelings we need to worry about. And, um, she tries to leave, and then he lures her back with chocolates. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like coming from anyone else but Rex Harrison, this would be hard to watch. And maybe it is hard to watch for someone that didn't grow up with Rex Harrison as a twisted father figure. Um, his description to her of the task at hand when I guess one of them Mrs. Pierce or Pickering like says you know does she even understand what she's getting into and he says this is what's going to happen and then by the end of it he says if you refuse this offer you will be the most ungrateful wicked girl and the angels will weep for you Um, it's really funny it's end it's terrible yeah but it's really funny. The movie adds this bathtub scene. I think it was added for the movie. I don't think they did this on sk- stage. It scared me when I was a child, and I think I fast-forwarded it. I did not care for Eliza being forced into the what looked like a steaming scalding bathtub, especially like Mrs. Pierce's face when she says, "I'll oh, catch me death." And then like Mrs. Pierce looks very serious and is silent, and then they tear her clothes off while she writhes and screams and says it
0: ain't right
1: I find it upsetting I don't know if I'm alone in that but along with the murder of Mary not Mary, God, Nancy and Eli- uh, Oliver it's um, uh, hard to watch uh, movie musical so um, we get into a song called uh, I'm an Ordinary Man I think that's what the title is Let's talk about the elephant in the room here. We're looking at gay men. Okay? Uh, This confirmed old bachelor business. It's a cliche at this point. You can't really watch the musical without asking this of yourself or making a joke about it. And, you know, there's a moment in this song where, I think it's the second verse, where he says, I'm a very gentle man. And he's recumbent on the armchair right in front of Pickering in a way that looks so demure and sexual (laughs) that it really throws you for a loop. And um, he goes up and down the stairs like multiple times during this song, holding uh, half of a skull, a cross-section of a human head uh, bookend, I guess. I don't know what it is or why he never lets go of it. But... um, Yeah, it's a song about uh, how women are uh, no good. (laughs) And, um, yeah, this is my, you know, when it comes to categories of gay guys, the one that just has no female friends and is just anti-woman. I can't think of an example of that. Well, Henry Higgins and Pickering. Let's just say that they're uh, pioneers. Well, Pickering is nice to the ladies. My point is, this song is about how he doesn't like the ladies he, he dislikes the lady so much that he has a song about it in the first act and a song about it in the second act. He says, uh, you want to talk of Keats or Milton, she only wants to talk of love. Hmm. Uh, there must be a little bit of love in Keats and Milton, right? <sighs> nice little song. Um, we get into, with a little bit of luck, one thing I forgot to mention, I didn't actually talk at all about my personal history with this show, um, I, I, uh, I did mention seeing it a lot as a child when I was, uh, the summer after sixth grade, my sister decided that she was going to direct an all youth production of My Fair Lady. I think it was the summer after her ninth grade year. And we had this aborted rehearsal process that was like a handful of us. It was her friend from school and like her little, her friend's little brother and like her friend's friends, like everybody got involved. They held auditions in our backyard And I uh, really wanted, I I got the role of Henry Higgins. And we did a few rehearsals of this and it didn't end up happening. I don't even know where it was supposed to happen. If I'm at a park or an auditorium or something. But um, one day this friend who was playing Eliza um, and whose idea the whole thing was and whose brother was involved and friends were involved, like she called Hillary and said, I'm out. I don't think, uh, my parents don't want me to spend all my time on this. And my sister uh, cried a lot. I remember that night on the phone, and I was bummed. But that would have been pretty bad. Um, I'm I'm not so uh, self-deprecating that I don't think uh, I was a talented (laughs) 12-year-old, but nobody needs to see a 12-year-old in an endless, uh, interminably long play. Uh, pretending to be Henry Higgins. It would have been bad. Anyway, uh, f- with a little bit of luck is okay. I like the harmonies in it. The Alfred Doolittle songs go on for a long time, both of them. These are long fucking songs. It's uh, it, They do a thing in the movie, I don't know if it's on stage, where he m- takes time in the middle of the song to mock the suffragists. Just a little extra fuck you to the ladies, as if there weren't enough in this fucking story. Uh, uh, the, or the suffragettes, I don't know what you call them. Or suffragists suffragette I don't know if suffragette is the pejorative but it's stuck and that's what they called themselves I don't know later on Alfred Doolittle goes to visit Henry Higgins and um, Rex Harrison does something amazing on the line how dare you come to blackmail me and he slams a book in the middle of the sentence it's very badass Alfred P. Doolittle um, played by Stanley Holloway on stage and on screen you know, I don't love him as a character. I love the idea of him. But his monologue, which is supposed to be so uh, goddamn thrilling, it's not that thrilling to me about being a member of the undeserving poor. Um, I find it somewhat forgettable. I feel like I got the point. I feel like I am at the end of that monologue before that monologue is over. I feel like I don't need all that monologue. Then we, uh, we get into, and, and a lot of that is from the original Shaw. I should mention that. We get into Just You White and Riegan's Just You White. Um, As if I haven't embarrassed my older sister enough in this episode with the story I just told, uh, my older sister sang this song in the Miss Los Angeles pageant, which is a precursor to the uh, Miss California pageant, which I believe is a precursor to the Miss America pageant, which then uh, gets you into the Miss Universe and so on. So um, yeah, she made it into the top 10 and in the talent portion, she sang this song which was a departure from what most of those uh, those thoughts were doing. <laughs> See, it's not my fault, guys. I just watched My Fair Lady and Carousel, and so I'm a chauvinist, but it's temporary. It'll be gone by tomorrow. So uh, don't cancel me. Higgins um, has too many employees working at his house. He has too many butlers and maids for just one dude. Now, I understand that he's not the only one living there in the course of the musical. I understand, I guess, that after meeting Colonel Pickering on the street, he decides he should be his ostensibly non-romantic live-in friend for uh, an undisclosed amount of time and that he lives there with him while he's learning about dialects. And then, you know, then fucking Eliza comes and moves in. And so, yeah, then there's three. I mean, there's too many employees even for three Like, this is not Downton Abbey, where there's all these generations of people in the house and you you need a fucking, you know, like we're in the middle of London and it's one dude's house. Like, at most, he should have two. Uh, This is wasteful. Where does he get all that money? Is it that lucrative? uh, Mapping vowels? God damn it. If it was then I was born, let's call it 100 years too late. And I wish that I could have Henry Higgins' job. They should make a sequel to My Fair Lady that's just all about Eliza trying to shit out that marble, the one that she swallows. I'm very concerned about that marble. Or she should shit it out at the end of the show. There's a lot of controversy, of course, about the end of the musical. She should um, like sing Without You and then just like aim her asshole at him and shit a marble at him. This is getting very... uh, Vulgar. So, I don't know if you noticed this, but Eliza makes zero progress during this entire um, stay at the Higgins Manor. Um, like right there, all the way up to the rain in Spain scene. Like she's like, I can't. I'm so tired. Don't hold me to that um, impression. I I know I didn't get the Cockney perfect, but um, and then. Higgins makes a speech to her about the dignity of, of speaking and that speech. And then, as if by magic, she can say, the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Apparently, I can't say it. I just fucked it up for the second time. Um, I hate this phrase, but I'm going to use it. When I, I was today years old when I learned that the plane is not an airplane. I am very, I'm sorry. I apologize for my uh, ignorance uh, of the history of flight and uh, the fact that, that yeah, I, 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 all my life have been imagining an airplane flying above Spain that for some reason it rained inside of it. I'm not kidding. I'm dead fucking serious. I, I thought that as a child and then I never questioned it. So, the rain in Spain stays mainly. In the plane. And then they sing a song. Where's that blasted plane? In Spain, in Spain. Then we get into a hit. We get into I Could Have Danced All Night. That's a song that I went into watching this for the first time. I went into it knowing that song already. And I remember thinking, wait, that's when th- that song is from this? They danced for like two seconds. And um, there's been no hint or inkling at any kind of um romantic interest between these two characters uh and there's some debate over whether there ever is but i mean this song certainly seems like there is i'm going to show my ignorance on this later i guess but um i could have danced all night uh, i work at that italian restaurant with the singing waiters uh people sing this song from time to time this song also is featured in the birdcage the wonderful film the birdcage although when Hank Azaria sings it and comes in and like finishes it off, it bothers me that he doesn't do the high note at the end, especially when he's like two octaves lower. I could have danced, danced, danced all night. He didn't go all night, <laughs> dance, 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 all night, which is the big um, crash, boom, bang at the end of that. So yeah, the millions of maids are putting Eliza to bed while she sings that song. Then we get into Asket Gavot, which I think the effect of this is really fun. And it went on to influence such things as the aristocrats in Avita and uh, other uh, examples. Sondheim has a whole thing that I talked about in a previous episode about everyone singing at the same time. He uh, This is another thing that um, ties the two today's two musicals together because he uses both of them as examples. He doesn't like it when an ensemble is singing... The same thing at the same time when all of the characters cannot logically, realistically be having the same thought at the same time. He uses carousel as an example of this being done badly with uh, this was a real nice clam bake. He doesn't think that everybody there could have thought it was a nice clam bake. Maybe some people had a bad time. But he uses asket gavotte as an example of this being used correctly. Because uh, it's all a lot of people uh, with really no thoughts of their own just trying to be fashionable and saying the exact same thing. So, the scene after this song, when Eliza arrives, is hilarious. So funny. Audrey Hepburn in the movie does such a good job at this. Rex Harrison putting a teapot and saucer on his head for no reason is so funny. I love everything about this. I think it's terrific. His general... Uh, Higgins's rudeness at the Ascot... And how his mother says, like, "What are you doing here? Fuck off! I, I don't. I no. Don't. I don't be around my friends. We'll talk to you at my house. I don't want people to see you. You're an embarrassment." Um. What I love is how like Higgins and Pickering and everyone else in that house like, will spend so much time figuring out how to tell her how to speak that they didn't bother giving her any content or telling her what to talk about. They say, "Uh, limit your conversation to the weather and everybody's health," but like surely they could have done a test run where she would have started talking about gin and they would have said, okay, hoo, ha, Okay, we're not going to talk about that. This is a little, uh, you're oversharing about, uh, you know, your aunt biting off the spoon. Let's not talk about that when we get to the fucking high society race. Now, here's a little history for you. Um, she reveals herself as a fraud at the Ascot when the the horses run and she says,
0: Dover, move your bloomin' arse!
1: This is adapted from, in Pygmalion, the famous line in Pygmalion is when she's leaving, and it's not the race, it's like uh, somebody's house, uh, Freddie Einsford Hill asks her, oh, are you going to walk through the park on your way home? And she says, walk, not bloody likely. And everyone goes, oh! <gasps> and here's the thing, not only the characters went, <gasps> But... The audience did, and the actress risked her career. You were not allowed to say something like "not bloody likely" on the stage in nineteen thirteen. So this was it made a big stir. This is like the when they, the first time they said "son of a bitch" in *Cat in the Hot tin roof. You know, this is big, uh, big moment in uh, 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 ob- obscenity history. Anyway, and I imagine saying uh, Bloom and Oss in nineteen fifty six must have been. Uh, Shocking, maybe not. Freddie Ansford Hill then sings his big song, which is "On the Street Where You Live." Uh, this is the song that I sing at this restaurant, this Italian restaurant with the singing waiters at which I work. I sing this um, when there—it's kind of slow, and most of my customers are on the old lady side of things. You know, when it's really uh, hopping and cooking in there. I'll trot out some of the flashier songs. I can't take my eyes off of you. And it had to be you with the big finish at the end. And uh, Build Me Up Buttercup is another favorite of mine. These are my staples. But if it's like, okay, we're getting a slow start here. And I got some old ladies. I'll sing them on the street where you live. So there you go. Um, It's like truly not romantic by today's standards. And obviously it's, you know, creepy that he's stalking her. Freddie Ainsford Hill is a stalker. Um, obvious point, Zoltan Karpathy, they, they eventually, okay, I skipped a lot, <laughs> they eventually make it to the, what's it called, the um, embassy ball, and uh, Theodore Bikel plays Zoltan Kapathy, this Hungarian prick uh, that uh, was an old student of whatever. He, this actor, Theodore Bakel was also a, a singer-songwriter in a, 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 what's it called, a activist in the 60s. And he had some sort of connection to my mother's theater company, Theater East. Uh, He was like maybe a founding member. I don't know. But he was like his headshot was up there on the board. And um, Theater East, by the way, if you're familiar with uh, the layout of Los Angeles and specifically Studio City, that was a theater in the 90s that was upstairs from Jerry's famous deli and the bowling alley and uh, that was really where uh i was bit by the theater bug <laughs> because uh, my mom did a lot of theater there uh, she wrote some plays and she acted in some plays and after school uh, we would go with her and do our homework while she rehearsed and i was spellbound and mesmerized uh watching those rehearsals i was like super into it um the embassy waltz is gorgeous um frederick Lowe uh, is a, is really the mvp of the show he does a nice job <laughs> in all the music it's beautiful and you know what else is beautiful? The carousel waltz. We'll talk about that later. This is a, be a nice double bill. Do the embassy waltz and the carousel waltz. Eliza dances with the Prince of Transylvania. And luckily for her, she's wearing jewelry that uh, is sort of like a neck cage because we know about these guys from Transylvania. <laughs> That's a joke I came up with watching it this very evening. There's a different act break in the movie than there is in the play. In the movie, they do a little um, intermission and an entre act right before the embassy ball. In the play, the intermission happens after the embassy ball, which really front loads the first act. I think. I mean, the movie does anyway. But anyway, the the second act is uh, full of book scenes, really, and um, uh, that suits me fine because I love the book scenes because it uh, it's they're good. We open act two with this evening. So you did it, you did it, you did it. I thought that you could do it, and indeed you did. Um, This is where we find out if the actor playing Pickering is able to sing. And he usually can't, because this is the only part where he does sing. And he's just sort of supposed to be a jolly old man that follows around, and he's like the good cop to Higgins' bad cop. These poor servants that are there when they get home have to pretend like they give a shit about this story. Who the fuck cares? that Professor Higgins had this victory um, I feel sorry for these servants uh, especially because they had to stay up and not get any sleep during all of those lessons and this whole song and scene is very Shakespearean in the sense that it tells the story of a big thing that happened offstage stage that it doesn't show and you would think a film would go ahead and show you that what actually happened rather than having a song telling the audience what happened But it didn't, and I'm not mad at it. But again, maybe just because I grew up with it. I'm used to it. There's um, a rhyme in here that's uh, kind of outrageous, but I'm not mad at it. Uh, Every time we looked around, there he was, that hairy hound from Budapest. Never leaving us alone, never have I ever known a Rudapest. (laughs) I can't help but like that, even though I know it's uh, outrageous. However, there is a rhyme later on that I am mad at, and I'm going to say it for you right now. Her English is too good, he said. Shit. Her English is... Give me a second. Damn it! Her English is too good, he said. That clearly indicates that she is foreign. Whereas others are instructed in their native language, English people oren. Oren. I don't like it. Go fuck yourself. Now, there's an added section in the movie that was originally in the Broadway show. But Rex Harrison refused to sing it. He said, fuck this. I don't like this section. I'm not going to sound like an idiot. And it's right after the Hungarian, Uh, uh, she is a princess, uh, and it's something like, uh, her blood, he said, is bluer than the Danube is or ever was. Royalty is absolutely written on her face. She she thought that I was taken in, but actually I never was. How could she deceive another member of her race? I know each language on the map, said he, and she's as Hungarian as the first Hungarian rhapsody. I did that all from memory. You're welcome. Now, like I said, I don't know what the fuck Rex Harrison's problem was with that passage, because it's not bad but he refused to do it. But when they made the film, George Cuker, Pecker, I knew I'd get around to saying it again, the director, he threatened to walk off if he didn't do it. So these two um, babies had a big fight about it and it, uh, the director won. So it was back in. And it's fine. I mean, we don't need to add any time to this thing, but I mean, it's good that it's in there because uh, it's good. It's definitely better than that foreign Oren mess earlier. Now, here's... Something that didn't occur to me on previous viewings, but really distracted me this time around. Act two, Eliza, what the fuck is going on? Like, why? what is this transformation? What exactly is the nature of it? Like, what happened? Because it's not just her speech that is different. Her whole presence is different. And it's like strange. And like and one of the first times she speaks she calls him a selfish brute. And like I don't know. Like I don't know what to say about this. She seems all the way through Audrey Hepburn seems more like the award ceremony Audrey Hepburn, like very fragile and uh vulnerable. And it's just like what happened to like she got less aggressive. It comes back a little bit when she does Show Me and a little bit in Just You Wait. But, you know, I don't know. It's, it's very disorienting. It seems like a completely different person. She spends the whole time silent. Like, the race through the ball, uh, after the race and the ball. Like, she doesn't say a word, really. She just walks around looking pretty. Um, which is funny, because the whole point was to teach her to speak nicely, not to give her a shower. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't, and I don't also don't know what's going on with her speech because she speaks pretty good English, but has bad grammars at times, and then intentionally gets Cockney again. Anyway, her big argument with Higgins is is um, it's very fun to watch. It's well written. A lot of the lines are direct from Shaw, like I said. Um, here's a little story that's in that um, that book that Alan J. Lerner wrote. Like Rex Harrison at one point had a line that he was he asked Alan J. Lerner, like, oh, I like that line. Is that from Shaw? Is that uh, original Shaw? And he said, oh, no, I wrote that. And then Rex Harrison was like, huh. And then he never delivered it as well again. <laughs> and so um, from that point on Alan J. Lerner like lied to him when he asked that question. He'd be like, yep, that's from the original, even if it wasn't. So there you go. There's a little story for you. Rex Harrison seems like a dick, but he's good in this. The cool thing is the scene ends by, um, with Eliza hurting his feelings. And the way that she bums him out is by treating him like a boss, like an authority. Like, I don't want to be accused of stealing and calls him sir. Like that gets his attention. He's like, yo, you shouldn't have said that. That, sh- that shows a want of feeling. And then he explicitly says like, you've wounded me to the heart. <sighs> and then in one of the better lines from the source material and from the musical, I said it at the top of the episode. I'll say it again. Damn, Mrs. Pierce! Damn the coffee, and damn you, and damn my own folly in having lavished my hard-earned knowledge and the treasure of my regard and intimacy on a heartless gutter snipe. In Pygmalion, there's a stage direction after this, and it says um, Eliza smiles for the first time, expresses her feelings by a wild pantomime, in which is an imitation of Hen- in which an imitation of Higgins's exit is confused with her own triumph. That doesn't really happen here in My Fair Lady. is a sad reprise of Just You Wait by The Fireplace. Uh, She does sing sing Show Me. That's a hell of a good song, melodically. Especially the... It does start with Freddie doing a little intro with purple lyrics, but they are purposely purple. Purposely purple lyrics. Speak and the world is full of singing and I am winging higher than the birds. You know. And um, like I said, it's the one moment of the second act where Eliza gets a little of that fire back and you're like, oh, good, thank God. She did. they didn't snuff that out. Getting married in the morning is too fucking long. And it's just, God, it repeated too many times. And um, you know, Alfred's whole thing about the middle class, it's its just like that Jacques Brel song. The, the middle class are just like pigs. The older they get, the dumber they get. The fatter they get, the less they regret. It's like um, the poor particularly hate the middle class uh, as opposed to the like elites. Is that just like me hating establishment Democrats or at least like having more anger towards establishment Democrats than I do uh, like congressional Republicans? Is it because they're like closer to me or they're in this middle ground and they're, they're acting like they're uh, virtuous. It could be, it could be. Anyway, um, after all, after this very, very long song, where uh, you know, a lot of dancing and revelry in the pub there. Henry Higgins sings uh, a hymn to him. Uh, that's a what's it called there? Uh, a homonym. <laughs> a hymn to him. You get what I'm doing? Uh, what I'm saying there? I don't have to spell it out for you, literally. And this is a masterpiece of woman hating. Um, women are irrational. That's all there is to that. Their head is full of cotton hand rags. They're nothing but exasperating, irritating, vacillating, calculating, agitating, maddening, and infuriating hags. It's probably not good that that's in my mind. What does that say about me? Again, you know, I got some issues to work out here. And just some of these lines are just like, Why is thinking something women never do? Why is logic never even tried? Straightening up their hair is all they ever do. Why don't they straighten up the mess that's inside? What's really funny all uh, in the film is how... <laughs> It's showing Higgins' misogyny, but also, like, the camera is not really interested in Mrs. Pierce's reaction. He, He directs the final verse to Mrs. Pierce saying, Mrs. Pierce, you're a woman, and then sings a whole other verse. Why can't a woman be more like a man? And at no point do we see how Mrs. Pierce feels about what he's saying. Like, it's all just about him having that, and then, like, like, the director is not even curious about how Mrs. Pierce feels about it. And you know I don't like Mrs. Pierce, but, uh, you know, I think she deserves to at least be like, hey, this is a shitty thing to say. I quit. You can't quit, Mrs. Pierce, because you're fired. You have been too mouthy this whole time. He goes to his mom's house, um, and there are some sick burns from his mother. Um, when he said, when she says to him, I recommend you, I suggest you stick to topics such as the weather and everybody's health. I may have that, I'm paraphrasing, but because he said that earlier and she throws that back at him. Henry's mother, Henry Higgins's mother is a uh, real, uh, badass. And then, um, this whole argument is, you know, I, I think that now I'm a little older. There are like lines in this that I appreciate a little bit more. And I'm not trying to defend Henry Higgins by any means. I need to keep qualifying this, but when he says he treats he treats a duchess as if she were a flower girl, it's true. He's um, he he's he treats everybody like shit. We see it happen. Not even just all the women. Like he treats uh, Zoltan Kapathi like shit. He says, "Who the devil are you?" He doesn't even know who he is yet, and he's like. Uh, I don't know. Why? What's all that? What are all those trinkets hanging off of you? Why, you know, why don't you cut your hair? Like he's um, he, he's defined by his rudeness. He's a rude man. He's, a, he's Larry David. I didn't even write that down here in my notes, but that is uh, the most brilliant insight that I need you to like musicals has ever had. Henry Higgins equals Larry David. Curb your enthusiasm. So um, also uh, her response to him, she says that she doesn't want to make love to him. Uh, She says that uh, it's more friendly-like, and that's what she wants. And Higgins, for a minute, is on board, but then out of nowhere, he's like, Eliza, you're a fool. And then he talks such mad shit to her. And uh, this is the other one that I wrote down in its entirety, and I'm not going to do it in the accent properly. I'm just going to barrel through this because it's a masterpiece. Uh, Even though it's really mean, and I don't condone meanness towards ladies in any era of history, he says... If you're going to be a lady, you'll have to give up feeling neglected if the men you know don't spend half their time sniveling over you and the other half giving you black eyes. You find me cold, unfeeling, selfish, don't you? Very well. Be off with you to the sort of people you like. Marry some sentimental hog or other with lots of money and a thick pair of lips to kiss you with and a thick pair of boots to kick you with. If you can't appreciate what you've got, you better go get what you can appreciate. I don't even really know what that means or how it applies here, but I love it. Thick pair of lips to kiss you with and a thick pair of boots to kick you with. Um... When she suggests that uh, she's going to become a teacher of phonetics, he says, Ha, ha, ha. Um, and then she sings Without You, which is, um, I think that this has been sullied by my uh, mother trauma, my personal mother issues, because my mom was really into this song. And uh, so I think uh, the show, this, hearing this song... Awakens the chauvinist in me and wants Higgins to win, and of course he doesn't win this one. He uh, gets owned, but then he goes out. Uh, he goes uh, out on the street, but not before calling Eliza an owl, sickened by a few days of his sunshine, which um, I intend to use in my daily life whenever I can. This is my. It's going to be my 2024 New Year's resolution to uh, tell people that they are owls sickened by a few days of my sunshine. The song in the sequence of uh, I've Grown Accustomed to Her her Face, I think that my father's love of this song may hold the key to what makes me sympathize with Higgins. Um, The first time I watched this all the way through, I was watching it with him late into the night. And he fell asleep on the couch and I said, like, uh, Dad, uh, you, what, you, you, do you want to get up and go to bed? You know, I was the, the parent in that situation, uh, for, you know, which was not like a common thing in my house. But just in that case, I, <laughs> my dad fell asleep before I did. And I was like, yeah, we, we get up and go to bed. And he's like, no, no, I want to stay up for when he goes, damn, 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 damn. That's my dad's favorite part. And so I think when I hear this song, I've grown accustomed to her face. It does remind me of my late father because he liked it, but also like um, my dad, like his he was a lawyer and he was a guy that wore a suit and tie every day of his life. And he was a very, like he was very much, he came from humble beginnings, son of a mailman, but he was the embodiment of an upper class man who uh ate salmon and had a pocket square and there was certainly some risotto on the side with that salmon i cannot I'm not uh, fail to mention the risotto but um and there's something about like if you grow up with sort of a uh, uh what's the word uh not, ex- uh, uh not not countercultural but like uh if you grow up liking uh edgy shit your enemy as a liberal edgy person is that guy but that was my dad. And I think that that's why as evil as like one of those guys is um, like a, like for instance, like a Mitch McConnell who has like done profoundly evil things. I have a hard time not thinking of him also as a grandpa, like as somebody's grandpa and then feeling sad for him. And the way that Henry Higgins is sad and I've grown accustomed to your to her face is makes me sympathize with him at the end and um sorry ladies i don't want him to uh, ha- get his way and here's the bad news he gets his way the ending of my fair lady is a perversion of the george bernard Shaw original ending in this version she comes back and he looks happy he says eliza where the devil are my slippers and then uh she looks uh you know she understands and that's in the end um george bernard shaw fought hard against productions of this revivals of this trying to give it a happy ending and to subtly change it to give it a happy ending he went so far as to publish a postscript on this when the script was published for uh general consumption he wrote a thing called what happens next that explains that she marries freddie and that that needs to happen. And he connects it to the original Greek myth of Pygmalion and Galatia. And that the sculpture needs to walk to walk away from the sculptor. Everything sucks at the end. Um, you know, he she, he talks about what likely happens in her life with Freddie, which is not too far off from what the musical version of Higgins describes in that final song. They're in the wretched little flat above a store. She does all the work for him because he's, he's not cut out for work. Because he's... There's something wrong with freddy he's like not right in the head um now i'm going to tell you something else um they did a revival of my fair lady recently and they changed the ending back <laughs> but not exactly i think i haven't seen it so i don't know i just read about it and sorry for the spoiler well no one's gonna see it. it's not on fucking broadway anymore and the tour isn't even on anymore she walks out basically and I think it I, I think, and I'm this is my guess, and it's based on things I've read. It's not based on anything I actually know. I think that it's more of a Me Too movement friendly fuck you when she walks out. I think that she's like I don't know. She just says like fuck your slippers and leads. I don't they didn't add any lines, I don't think. She just walks out. It's similar to what they did at the end of um, A Little Night Music when I saw it recently at the Pastina Playhouse, because Charlotte gets a pretty sexist ending where she goes back to this guy that's been horrible to her and in that production even though she goes back to him they have him they have her slug him and it's sort of a clever half measure to not change the original that was written by people that are dead of a piece that is beloved but add a little uh, acknowledgement to your audience at the end like, times have changed and this, okay, here you go everybody we realize that times have changed I don't really have an opinion about this people are mad that they changed the ending for the revival but it's like, you know it's already a changed ending so who, gives, who cares I feel like her having any warm feelings for Higgins are not really earned in the first place I feel like her singing I could have danced all night is weird um, he treats her like shit all the way through and shows her no kindness at all, except by way of clothes and chocolates. So, anyway, final thoughts. My fair lady, this musical is thoroughly watchable to me. And I think it's because of the performances, partly because of the nostalgia, and the writing and the way that it incorporates passages from Shaw. And it's always nice to, you know, hear a master of the English language and something that's really old and written in its original language <laughs> so there you go Shaw they really like him over there across the pond and um the turns of phrase the richness of the language it's great is it enlightened of course it isn't it, 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 why would it be and sh- you know should it be revived now and if so should they change the ending probably not but who cares uh, whatever it's fine and that's all I have to say about my fair lady I do have a very clever segue though so let's rewind for a moment. Uh, Lerner and Lowe, as I discussed earlier, they're trying to figure out how to turn Pygmalion into a musical, but they're hitting a wall because it's violating all these very important rules about how you need a love story and a second love story in an ensemble. Alan J. Lerner runs into a gentleman by the name of Oscar Hammerstein. Uh, half of the duo, <laughs> Rogers and Hammerstein, And Oscar, Hammerstein, tells Alan Jay Lerner that he and his partner, Richard Rogers, TRIED to make a musical out of Pygmalion, and it CAN'T BE DONE! So there you go. How wrong he was. But, um, what can be done is a musical based on another play with a very depressing ending, just like Pygmalion. That play is called Lilium. That is what ties these two shows together Um, Both of them are based on old plays With depressing endings That require a little bit of um, Fixing (laughs) Ferenc Molnar's play Lilium Eventually becomes the musical Carousel Which is the second show that we're going to talk about this week Now, before this week's rewatch My soft take on Carousel Which I hadn't seen in a while is that it has some good qualities, some good melodies, but if you wanna watch it, you gotta tune out certain things or sort of uh, translate as you go, so to speak. Um, And there are a lot of things you gotta do this with. I'm not of the opinion that we need to throw everything out wholesale if they have some weird elements in it. For example, um, you know, in one week, it will be 16 years since I had a drink, and my life was saved by a certain program that is anonymous and uh, a book. A, uh, let's just call it the large book of this anonymous program. <laughs> and um, there's life saving information in this book that everybody should read, but there are also chapters in this book that you're like, well, this was clearly written in 1939 the way the you're talking about wives and their roles and all of this but you can sort of okay I translate as I go this is well let's just take gender out of it and we'll, okay it's 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 uh, whatever there there are things like you have to do this with everything that's a little bit old even things that are not you know not that old you have to do that now upon rewatching carousel via the hollywood film earlier today I am sorry to say that the juice is not worth the squeeze in this case. There is not enough there there. Um, There just isn't. There are nice melodies, but I think it's a net negative. And if you're a carousel apologist, I want to spend the rest of this podcast trying to talk you out of that. So stay tuned and have an open mind. I I need you to not like Carousel. And if you're not a Carousel fan, or if you're not familiar with Carousel, I need you to know that I do not need you to like Carousel. Nobody need like Carousel. I don't think I like it, and uh, it should not be done. It really, really should not be done. No one should do Carousel. Please, don't attempt to clean it up for the new millennia. Don't do it. Throw it out. Send it to the Library of Congress. Uh, A little history. Now, this is the first Rodgers and Hammerstein show we've really dealt with directly. Obviously, they redefined musical theater in the 40s, initially, um, with Oklahoma. And I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't like the work of Rodgers and Hammerstein. I think it deserves respect. Um, I have come to appreciate Oklahoma more in recent years, to be honest with you. Uh, especially in what it did uh, historically, it brought stories and characters to the forefront. It invented the book musical. Hooray! Hooray! Okay, great. That's what it did uh, in 1943, and uh, I think that's a good thing <laughs> they did that. Um, and I like aspects of it. Um, for instance, the uh, Judd Fry. Like that is Judd Fry is pretty fucking dark, sad villain that you end up feeling pretty sad for, right? Am I right? Um, prior to this Hammerstein, you know, had worked with, um, Jerome Kern on Showboat, which is really the first show that, uh, is, or the first piece of musical theater that is not just fun and games and it has a story and it's the, an integrated musical, is what they called that for a while. Um, And, of course, Richard Rodgers, he had a career before he started working with Oscar Hammerstein. He worked with Hart, Lorenz Hart. He wrote Pal Joey and Babes in Arms and shit like that. So, um... They get together. They have the biggest hit in the fucking world with Oklahoma. And Carousel is their sophomore effort. They're like, okay, let's not pretend that we're going to match the fucking seismic uh, popularity of our last show, but let's do something. And, um... They adapt the play Lilium, by uh, Monniar, <laughs> from Budapest. That, that hairy hound from Budapest, Ferenc Monyar. See how I'm connecting these shows uh, seamlessly? Uh, he wrote a play called Lilium. So anyway, um, it's very close to what Carousel becomes. The story is very close. Very, uh, The musical is very faithful to the play, except for the ending, which we'll get to later. While they're kicking around ideas. The original idea that they have is to set the show in Louisiana, and uh, he's a Creole uh, guy. <laughs> and uh, that yeah, they had just done, of course, a show set in Oklahoma, and they were like looking for a new setting. They just said, that, "Let's try Louisiana." They thought it would be too hard to write lyrics for those types of people because of their insane accents. Because yeah, I, I don't know if you know this. Like Hammerstein does a thing where he writes out people's lyrics phonetically, like fur uh you know and uh other examples of this <laughs> That's the only one coming to mind right now um it's rogers who has the idea to set it new england because he's got a little kind of a little home in connecticut and he thought it'd be fun sailors and whalers and ladies and he also has an agenda he wants to uh rehabilitate the image of new englanders because at the time they were seen as uh, puritans that didn't have any fun at all he's like let's show these people having some fun at the clam bake so uh there you go New Englanders can be fun they're not a globlot uh, it was a hit Carousel not the same commercial success as Oklahoma but uh, over the years it's gotten revived like crazy all the time and it is Richard Rogers' favorite thing he's written that's important to remember maybe it isn't I don't know um, my journey with Carousel uh, I watched the movie when I was a kid didn't like it found it boring and or depressing but then it was announced that it was gonna be the big musical of the year at my high school when I turned uh, junior year and um, you know it was my second year at the school so I was like okay now I have a chance I can maybe get a part in this I really wanted the part of Mr. Snow I mean obviously I wanted to be Billy but that was hopeless because everybody knew the guy that was gonna play Billy and he was a senior and blah 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 so I tried really hard for Mr. Snow I got cast as the heavenly friend and um, that was fine, who cares, fuck it. The guy that got cast as Mr. Snow was more of a Mr. Snow type, and um, it was communicated to me by adults that I was too handsome to play Mr. Snow. So uh, I uh, took that as a compliment and went about my business. As the Heavenly Friend, I uh, wore an all-white suit as a costume. Uh, the Heavenly Friend, by the way, is the one that takes Billy down from heaven in the second act to uh, you know, show him things. and yeah, the heavenly friend is from heaven and he's a friend, and he wears an all-white suit I stole this costume, and then later, after I left the realm of musical theater and became a drunk and a stoner, I used it for all kinds of weird shit I used it one night, uh, very drunk in the middle of the night, to uh, take my electric, battery-powered electric keyboard into the local park, and I sat in the local park uh, with my friends not by myself, uh, also in weird costumes playing music, and uh, freaking people out, so the best entry point to Carousel is this film. Um, there's a live in Lincoln Center version of it that's available now that uh, I can't recommend. I don't like it. Uh, I, I don't like the movie either, but the movie is a little bit better. I acclimated myself to the music via the 1994 revival, which uh, just the soundtrack of that. And uh, that, of course, is the show that like uh, made, put Audra McDonald on the map. She was just out of NYU and um, maybe Juilliard, I don't know. She was just out of some New York City uh, musical theater college program and got that part and uh, the world was never the same. Audra McDonald as Carrie Pippridge. Um, last year, 2022, I was cast in a production of Carousel as uh, Jigger Cragen. That's a name you got to be really careful with when you're saying that name. Jigger Cragen, I got that part in it. Um, It was going to be in San Luis Obispo. I had just gotten back from Pullman, Washington, a production of Company, and I had a lot of life changes, and I started to sort of learn that as fun and romantic and interesting as these out-of-town musicals are to do, and how they make you feel like you're really living the life of, um, you know, uh, the the hi-ho, the glamorous life, hi diddle-dee-dee, you you take a financial hit doing those, even if you're just a singing waiter. Uh, The lost wages as a singing waiter are not uh, recovered to you. You're not made whole by the salary of doing a show in San Luis Obispo or in Pullman, Washington. So I could not uh, do it, and I dropped out of it. And the interesting thing about that, this was a short rehearsal process and uh, two performances only. And they were all in one weekend. These two performances were supposed to happen in one weekend. And those two performances were canceled because of a COVID outbreak in the cast. So the show never happened. So it turned out to be uh, okay that I didn't go to San Luis Obispo. Um, Enough about me. I wonder if I had a dollar for every time I say that on this podcast. Uh, Let's talk about the show. The Carousel Waltz is the best thing about Carousel. Um... And if anything should survive from it in a time capsule, it should be that. Similar to the Embassy Waltz in My Fair Lady, uh, this, the Carousel Waltz is a great fucking waltz. I don't really know. I appreciate classical music on a very on a surface level, and I have things that I appreciate for different scenarios. For instance, um, you know, if I'm just studying, then I need a nice tranquil Mozart symphony that's not going to really grab my attention. If I want to, like, really dig into something good, then I, I enjoy a Prokofiev. I know these are all from different periods in classical and modern and Baroque and whatever. Um, but I... So I, I all this to say, I feel like the Carousel Waltz is up there with some of the well-known uh, pieces of classical music or whatever music. So... Uh, the Carousel Waltz is great. Richard Rodgers is a prick, but he writes in hell of a damn Carousel Waltz. He was anti-overture at this point, and because Rodgers and Hammerstein are now redefining what musical theater is, like they could have just killed the entire concept of an overture. And they almost did, because Rodgers hated the idea because when he had an overture, people came, the people that came late went clang, clang, clang in their seats and you couldn't hear the overture. He said you could only hear the brass parts. All of the strings were getting lost because of the rude, late audience members. So he said, Alright, what about this? We'll have this overture, but let's add a little pantomime to it that'll force the audience to shut the fuck up and watch it. <laughs> and so they added a whole thing where it introduces the characters during the carousel waltz. Um, it's very weird how little carous- of a like actual carousel there is in the musical carousel. Um... And this whole idea of Billy Bigelow, that he's so good at this job, and it's the joy of his life. The movie... I mean, the movie could have added more instances of a carousel. The the story doesn't necessitate it. It's just sort of where he starts, is being a barker for a carousel. The problem with the fucking movie is it shows him doing it, and it shows how little there is to it, and, like, how bad he is as it. Like... He, they, he's standing there. Gordon McRae is Billy. is standing there just going, hurry, hurry, hurry. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Is it because he's handsome? Allegedly handsome? Is that why he's good at it? There's no children on the carousel, only young women. So it's just, the, he's making all these young women wet and they're getting on the carousel because he's standing there. He's not good at barking. And it's not a thing that people can be good at because it's entry level. <sighs> Let's talk about the fatal flaw of Carousel, which should be obvious to anybody watching Carousel, Um, probably from the very beginning of its inception to now. Billy Bigelow is a piece of shit. He is a bad person and not a fun bad person a la Henry Higgins. He is a tiresomely bad, unlikable character that right when you meet him, you want to be done with him. He's got this whole relationship with the Mrs. Mullins who owns the carousel With it's got sexual undertones. I wonder if any like musical theater nerds in heterosexual relationships, like I wonder if anyone does like sexual role plays as Billy and Mrs. Mullins. Uh, that I, If anyone does, please, you can send me a private message on that one. Uh, I don't expect you to write that in the iTunes comments. Um but yeah, she's got sort of a, a femdom thing, dominant female uh, sexual hold over him, um, and he breaks out of it and then, you know, outrages her. Um, all, I mean, this is a pretty unfriendly portrayal of a working class man. Um, and the way in which this character is stupid seems... I wasn't around in those days, I, but it seems like he's stupid in a way that was dreamed up by an elite just with some of these lines we're just out of nowhere he's like hey you trying to get me to marry you? No, then what's putting it in my head? And like I said, you know, the what fur and the, I I figure, you know, those are all written that way or spelled that way in the script. Uh, Is this a local color? Is that what they call local color? Like in all of those novels in the fucking early 20th century America? Musical theater, particularly early musical theater but really contemporary musical theater too it can never quite figure out how to faithfully portray a tough guy not in a musical this is the golden age version this you know all of the guys in this musical that are tough guys billy and all these sailors the way that they hitch up their belts and stand like I don't know. And, and like later, I, I guess maybe like a more contemporary example of this is the fucking guys in Miss Saigon and the shit that they're saying and the ways that they're behaving. The heat is on in Saigon. The girls are hotter in hell. It's just weird and it doesn't seem natural. Um, we get into your queer one, Julie Jordan cut from the movie, but, um, This is where we introduce this character of Julie, because Julie Jordan is uh, an idealized, it's the selfish man's dream girl. It's the self-centered prick's idea of a good time (laughs) uh, romance. Because you can treat her like shit, and she's just hypnotized by you. By a love that she doesn't even know why she has it. But uh, she's there, and she's not going anywhere. You can beat the living shit out of her. And you shouldn't. You certainly shouldn't. But uh, this is what Julie Jordan has to offer. But only to one guy. And that one guy is Billy Bigelow. And it's very unfortunate. The song Mr. Snow to me seems like a speed bump because we barely know Carrie at all at this point and she's telling this long story about this guy. It's not even a story. It's just like a, you know, future plans with this guy. And... Um, You know, every time I hear this song, I I think about the fact that my little sister, uh, it was going to be her first year at this high school, and I was helping her at the piano, trying to teach her this song, Mr. Snow. And um, my mom and my other sister were nearby, like uh, being a peanut gallery. Like she was getting the note wrong. I remember specifically which note she was singing. His name is Mr. Snow, like resolving it on the root note, the tonic rather than uh, the Major 7th. His name is Mr. Snow. His name is Mr. Snow. I was trying to fucking deal with it, and my mom and my sister kept chiming in, and I kept like, stop, stop, stop. I got it, I got it. But then my little sister became overwhelmed and started to cry and went to her room, and then, like, never sang again. And this is something I feel really strongly about. If you... This can be done so easily by someone being clumsy... If you communicate to a child that they're a bad singer, you can really rob them of something important that may uh, have offered them comfort. The world is full of people that were told they couldn't sing when they were young and so never attempted to try again. And singing is one of the best goddamn things that the human body can do. (laughs) And everybody has a right to do it. So please, if you have any children in your life, even if it is uh, grating to hear them try to sing, you you have to fucking hide that and be supportive. I stopped playing the clarinet, full stop, uh, when a f- member of my family made a, a snide comment at a dinner party, and uh, it happens. I'm not. I I feel very strongly about this. I know this is all about cynical jokes this uh, podcast but if this podcast accomplishes nothing else i want to send out a public service announcement do not tell children they can't sing anyway whew. mr snow otter mcdonald right out of college star um mr snow in the lincoln center version carrie is played by his jesse mueller who is uh, fairly recently become kind of a star big broadway star i think and waitress and a couple other things she really for the first time made me makes me like Carrie Pippridge. She seems like a real fucking like Spitfire and I can kind of get her relationship with Julie that Carrie is the star of the friendship and that like she's got all of this personality and panache and Julie is kind of this non-entity that stares uh, absent-minded at the loom when she's working at the mill. So um Yeah, Julie is kind of mentally challenged. And this comes across a little bit on the 90s revival album because she's kind of, oh, I'm kind of dumb. But in contrast to Jesse Mueller's performance, the lady playing, I don't know her name, but the woman playing Carrie in the movie is a little, uh, doesn't really do this. Like she seems uh, painfully normal. But Jesse Mueller does a nice job. If I Loved You is obviously a top tier song. And it's part of something called The Bench Scene, which was apparently groundbreaking. People were watching that and they're like, what the fuck's going on? Is this a song? Is this a scene? Is that a reprise of the song that they sang a minute ago? Are they talking now? Now they're singing? This is a new melody? What the fuck is happening? Um, And it's supposed to lend credibility to the Billy and um, Julie love story throughout. The problem is, god damn it, I don't like Billy. And I don't support this romance. Um, It's stupid. It's nothing he says is makes you like him or feel for him in any way. Um, and I'm a guy that's, you know, usually on the, the side of the underdog. But if the underdog starts uh, growling at the uh, chihuahua, <laughs> I'm not on his side anymore. Um, the revival of this in the, in 1994, um, I had of it a re- recycled... Uh, parroted echoed opinion from my parents specifically specifically my father he thought that this was a sign that musical theater was going to hell because the famous bench scene that's all just about the two people in the scene and the song uh, was done in front of an enormous moon and it was a sign of the fact that musical theater was becoming all about spectacle and it was right when uh, the lion king was going to come out and then it was all just about yeah uh, flashy expensive shit now, one element of the show that I hate almost as much as I hate the character of Billy Bigelow is the ensemble. I hate the ensemble in this show. The people that sing in the ensemble are the stupidest assholes that get excited about the stupidest shit like clam bakes and the month of June occurring in the same place that it does every year, every 12 months. June. They're singing and dancing about it forever. And it seems like it's there. Like, it could allow for a contrast. Like, Billy feels alienated from these people who are all basic and dumb. But he also sucks, and he's also dumb. Everybody's fucking dumb. And I can't believe that people in Maine were that dumb, uh, even in those days. (laughs) I think that this is very condescending. And the whole clambake song and the fucking june song this is parodied in schmigadoon in episode one with that corn pudding song very funny the most annoying part about this ensemble is when they do the man woman back and forth convo where it's just uh, the 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 sailors have this cheerful whimsical masculinity now just a minute ladies yeah got no call to fret we only ask politely if you was ready yet and they're saying they're hungry and then the ladies are all together like, You'll get no drinks or victuals till we get across that bay. It goes on and on. And again, like this is, they're talking about June. Like have they never heard of June gloom? There's some drawbacks to June as a month. I guess in May it's like cold as fuck and freezing and snowing for half the year. And so June is very exciting. Um, June in California doesn't mean much. Um, I realize that Oscar Hammerstein is... So Stephen Sondheim's mentor, but um, and you know he's the master of the master. But can we can we agree that lines like "fucking love has got my brother Jr. and my sister's even loonier"? We that's not good. We can agree that's not good. Stephen Sondheim, by the way, saw this when he was 15 years old. He was in the audience and he cried his fucking eyes out. And he saw Mary Rogers, his uh, soon-to-be beard and the daughter of Richard Rogers. uh, They were both crying. But when he heard the song uh, June is Busting Out All Over, the actress playing Nettie uh, had a very operatic voice, and he thought she was saying Julie's busting out all over because she was pregnant. So, ha ha, that's funny. Uh, The closest that we get to a character that at least by my standards is in any way sympathetic is Jigger Cragen. Again, be very careful with that name. You don't want to... uh, Go the wrong way on that. Um, obviously, until the stuff with Carrie in the second act, that's not good. He's a prick. Uh, at least he's not trying to marry one of these fucking girls, though. You know, he the whole scene with uh, Mrs. Mullins is a common woman and put on another coat of paint. You're starting to peel old pleasure boat. That is again tickles my uh, uh, asshole funny bone. <laughs> Carrie who is uh, allegedly Julie's friend, when Julie says uh, Billy can't work, she says, Mr. Snow says a man who can't find work these days is just bone lazy. All right, well, fuck you, Mrs. Gingrich. You know, that's a shitty thing to say. Um, So yeah, Carrie sucks uh, for saying that. Uh, Mr. Snow really sucks, uh, but he's not supposed to really be a... he kind of starts as a, a sympathetic character, like a silly guy, and then he... he seems like a bit... He, 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 he In the revival, Eddie Corbett played the part, um, which is maybe why I wanted the part so badly, because Eddie Corbett is from Assassins, Giuseppe Zangara. And I think the fact that Mr. Snow is a tenor is a symbol to the audience that he's a cuck. Like, all of the uh, really tough guys in these shows are baritones. Uh. But he's like...
0: Ah.
1: So, there you go. He lays out his shitty five-year plan to carry in this um, fucking When the Children Are Asleep intro. He's he's going to be a try-hard capitalist fisherman. The first year I'm married, I'll have one little boat. The next year I'll go and buy another little boat. I'll make twice as much out of three little boats. And the next thing you know, I'll have four little boats, then eight little boats, then a three little boats. Um Yeah. And when the children are asleep, he says, um, we'll sit and dream the dreams that every other dad and mother dream. Wow. See, Carrie can do better or Jesse Mueller's version of Carrie can do better than this guy. This guy is a fucking snooze. And, uh, he says himself that he just wants to have the dreams that everyone else has. He's boring, but there's no one else that isn't boring because Billy is also pretty banal. Um, this is around the time we found out that Billy is hitting her. He's hitting Julie. And it becomes, I'm sorry, it becomes nearly impossible to sympathize with him. Maybe in 1945 it was easy. But, um, yeah, it's like, what? what? Hold on. This is still the hero of the story? F- fuck him. That sucks. And then Mrs. Mullins <laughs> says to him, I hear you're beating her. If you're sick of her, why don't you leave her? No sense beating the poor thing. Like, that's lower than a dog. Like, people wouldn't say... Like, if you were beating your dog, people would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Stop hitting that dog and go get some fucking therapy. She's just saying, like, listen, you know, there's no sense beating her. No, let, let her alone. You know, <laughs> It's horrible. Um, there's no actual hitting of Julie in the movie. There is in the play. When we did it in high school... My director made the insane choice to have it be a real smack. And this poor girl who played Julie, who was a friend of mine. Like one day was like seeming down. I was like, "Hey, what's the matter?" And she was like, "Oh, nothing. It's just um he hit me really hard today." It was fucking ridiculous. Like in a theater school or like or a, an arts high school where we, there's an opportunity to teach someone a stage slap, although god, they never look real um anyway i can't believe that but the the mrs mullins says to billy you're the artist type you belong among artists what he's not an artist hurry 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 that's that's his art being sexy to the ladies and saying hurry 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 let's get through the rest of this fucking thing it's making me angry (laughs) fucking carousel he's saying soliloquy I used to love soliloquy and I used to sing it all the time. It was like a feat to play it on the piano and sing it all the way through. Um, but uh, it's a dumb, frustrating song. I think that this show can suck even more than it already does if the people sing operatically, which is a tendency, people have a tendency to do, especially when they play Billy. Um, Gordon McCray doesn't do this. He strikes a good balance, he has a musical theater baritone. That's like semi-legit. John Raitt kind of also. The guy in the um, Lincoln Center one, the newer one with Jesse Mueller. I don't know his name. But that's when Billy has an operatic voice. It's just like he transforms the minute he starts singing. Because he's this fucking idiot. Hey, are are you trying to marry me? I like to be with a lot of girls, and then he's like,
0: heart, 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 "Stars in the sky."
1: I think it's the minute you start singing operatically, you seem like you're doing high art, and it does not work for a dumb idiot character like Billy Piccolo. Um He makes it very clear in this song soliloquy that this hypothetical son uh, that he's going to have, he does not want him to marry a skinny-lipped virgin with blood like water. Very concerned about the, um, you know, how chaste or non-chaste the woman that his son ends up having sex with uh, will be. He then has the famous moment in the song, the brilliant revelation that it may be a fucking XX chromosomes and not fucking XY. And that what if he is a girl? Fate worse than death. He says, you can have fun with a son, but you gotta be a father to a girl. This is somehow offensive to boys and girls because, um, you know, it's suggesting you can't have fun with a daughter and it's suggesting that, uh, you don't have to be a father to a son. Uh, you can just fucking play ball with him. And if he gets too loud, you can smack him, but you can smack a daughter too, as we learn later. The end of the song, Soliloquy, is the best part of the song. Maybe the best part of the score, not counting the carousel waltz. It's very emotional, and I find that it's the one tiny section of the show where I feel for Billy. Um, he's got to get ready before she comes, and uh, he's, uh, he's gotta, she's got to be sheltered and fed and dressed in the best that money can buy. I never knew how to get money, but I'll try. My God, I'll try. I've been there, Billy. I've been a guy who uh, didn't know how to make money and felt like a fucking loser and a failure. So um, that's a good part of that song. However, the act two opening, we get the worst song in the show. This was a real nice clam bake, which we alluded to when talking about My Fair Lady. Not only is it so fucking stupid. And again, this ensemble is just they've got nothing in their heads. But like the phrasing of that, like this was a re this was a real nice clam bake the way that (laughs) the operative word nice is uh, buried there. This was a real nice clam bake that sucks and the phrasing, and all the things that they say in the verses like remember when we raked them red hot lobsters out of the driftwood fire. Yeah, you mean 20 minutes ago that thing that we just did. Why are we reminiscing? And recapping all of this. And uh, fucking... Uh, and then the the way that the ladies um, go,
0: fit for foreign angels, fit for foreign angels, fit for foreign angels choir.
1: It's so annoying. It's fucking annoying. There's a whole thing with uh, Jigger Cragen and Carrie. And a, uh, he, you know, this is where he essentially... It's suggested that it's something. It's a rape in the sense, of the the fan the fantastics uh, sense of the word. Like he's not literally sexually uh, penetrating her, but it's like he's uh, he pulls puts her over his shoulder and tries to carry her off. Rape in the sense of take, <laughs> and him just having her over his shoulder is enough for uh, Mister Snow to be like, "Well, I guess you're not with me anymore." <laughs> and he sings geraniums in the winder which is only on stage not in the movie which is just full of self-pity and shit um oh can i say something something i forgot to tell you about um <laughs> a real nice clam bake that makes it even worse it's a trunk song they cut it from oklahoma it used to be called this was a real nice hayride ridiculous anyway Back to the matter at hand, Carrie and Jigger. I think this could also be a sexual role play. Someone should come up with a book of, um, you know, fun sexual games, role play games to play from musical theater. Carrie has two options here. She can uh, succumb to the murdering roustabout who uh, sexually assaults her, and or she can go back to the stuff shirt who blames her for having been ravished. Uh, and then sings geraniums in the winter and by the way both of these men both of these options reek of fish they both uh, deal with fish all day long and they smell bad stone cutters cut it on stone uh, is a song that Jigger Cragen sings they cut his other song blow high blow low out of the first act uh, in the movie and that's uh, it's not a bad song but again it's like a long dance that you don't necessarily need uh, he gives her good advice in this song, that there's uh, nothing so bad as for a woman as a man who thinks he's good. But again, he's a rapist and a murderer. The ladies, by the end, say there's nothing so bad for a woman as a man who's bad or good. I guess considering the options, they're right. Um, but then Julie sets them straight with the worst advice yet in a song called What's the Use of Wondrin'? Which is right up there with as long as he needs me from Oliver. Can't help loving that man of mine from Showboat. Happy to keep his dinner warm from fucking uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and uh, Stand by Your Man by Tammy Wynette. Uh, it's what's the good of wondering if he's good or if he's bad? He's just he's your feller. You gotta just fucking give him a kiss. When he wants your kisses, give them to the man. And I, I, st- when I watch this, like I, I swear to God, I'm not trying to sound. Again, like a white knight, male feminist posturer, virtue signaller. I was genuinely angry this time around. Like, I stepped outside of the realm of reading the song ironically and uh, thinking about it in retrospect and, like, contextualizing it in the time and just thinking, fuck this song and fuck this show. And um, that's kind of what I came away with it at the end. But... Anyway, after this, we got the scene with Billy and Jigger. They're doing the card playing and they're talking. It's one of the best scenes, talking about class dynamics in heaven, and is saying, you know, yeah, you don't get, we don't get any uh, harps or songs because we're poor. When we get to heaven, we're gonna have a shitty cloud, etc. And then <laughs> in the movie, anyway, that ends up being kind of true, but also because I don't know, Billy is so fucking stupid that he falls on his knife, trying to get away. I forgot that. I guess I assumed all this time that Bascom or the police shot him, but this dumb fuck tries to escape and he's got a knife in his pocket and he fucking falls on it. In our version in high school, um, the director, this is not this actress's fault, who she went on to have a career actually on Broadway, and like one of the few people uh, that continued in this career, but um, he had her crying on stage over his dead body for like a full 15 minutes. And I remember after the show opened or was finished or whatever all of the theater teacher this was the musical theater thing and the the theater teachers were a separate thing they were all very serious these theater teachers they talked mad shit about this to us the students and used it as an example of like what was wrong like what not to do that she did all of the crying for the audience um anyway uh, you'll walk you'll never walk alone is a beautiful song along with if I loved you it's an example of the simple beauty of Roger and Hammerstein's songs real good um, after you'll walk alone you'll never <laughs> you'll never walk alone after that song however out of nowhere we're in the afterlife which is a bold choice to make halfway through the second act of your show I mean at least in the movie I think it's smart they front load it with heaven stuff we, show, we see Billy in heaven first and then he tells the story and then he goes down so at least we know at the beginning There's a supernatural element here. The afterlife here involves somebody called the Starkeeper. That was not the original concept. The original concept I just learned today in my Wikipedia research, it was supposed to be um, Mr. and Mrs. God, like an old couple in a parlor. And it wasn't working. Richard Rogers, uh, right before opening, he said, we got to get God out of that parlor. And Hammerstein said, well, where should we put him? And Rogers said, I don't give a fuck. Put him on a ladder for all I care. Just put him somewhere. And then um, Hammerstein took him literally and put uh, him on a ladder and made the starkeeper and the heavenly friend, which is what I played. Because it's a Rodgers and Hammerstein show, there needs to be a long, needless ballet. There is one here where we learn about Billy's daughter, Louise, after he's dead. She's grown up or she's a teenager. She's about to graduate, I guess. She's this barefoot free spirit. She steals a hat from the haughty snow teenage girl. And then there's some super weird shit where she sees a human version of a carousel, like the carousels in town, and she gets uh, seduced and abandoned by some carnival barker type dude, even though she's like 12 fucking years old, or looks like she is. I guess she's graduating high school. And then all of the kids in the town go, shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. And uh, it's very annoying. And uh, Louise says, I hate all of you. And collapses onto a uh, wheel. Somehow... Julie has a big fucking cottage, which is not explained. Her journey after the death of Billy to provide for her uh, only daughter as a single mother—it's it, all that they say is that she has a lot of grit. But it's, we're not a hundred percent sure how she gets that big cottage. Enoch Junior uh, is like wants to like marry. Louise, but then he says, "Oh, it'll be hard to convince my father to marry beneath my station." <laughs> Little asshole. Um, I do like that term when someone, someone says something's beneath their station. Billy, even in after death, is such a stupid asshole idiot that he smacks his fucking daughter for practically nothing just because she's afraid of stranger danger. She's like, "No, I don't talk to me. I don't know who you are." And then he's like, smacks her. And then the heavenly friend who I think is really the only... (laughs) Maybe I'm biased. He's the only character that offers any sort of wisdom or intelligence uh, uh, up to this point. He has a weirdly aggressive line where he says to uh, Billy, Failure. You struck out blind again. Anytime there's any difficulty, all you do is hit someone you love. Failure. That was my big moment as the heavenly friend. Then, um... We get to a line that uh people use myself included i've used to invalidate (laughs) carousel by talking about how bad it is louise uh says uh he hit me but it doesn't hurt is it possible mom for someone to hit you hit you hard and uh, you don't feel it at all and then julie says it is possible sweetheart for someone to hit you hit you hard and it doesn't hurt at all this is the last line of Lilium. The play that this is based on. And uh, it's the it's like that song by the Shirelles. Uh, the, the, he hit me and it felt like a kiss. In the 50s and 60s, folks, y- y- you are excused for hitting your lady if you just did it out of love. That's a shame. but uh, And I don't even mean to be... Like, I really... I went from, like I said, I went from having like a cynical, um, you know, uh, scorn of this to having like, I am outraged by the fact that Carousel exists. Uh, it sucks. It fucking sucks. And then the country doctor is, is the same actor that plays the Starkeeper. And Billy's like, isn't that the fucking Starkeeper? And then the Heavenly Friends says, yeah, hey, a lot of these country doctors and preachers remind you of the Starkeeper. So country doctors and preachers are God somehow. That's great. That's great. The big problem, of course, with the ending. Especially, so in the play, this is the difference between the play and the movie. It's even worse in the play. In the play, Billy is like in a purgatory place and he demands to speak to the highest judge of all. He sings the song, The Highest Judge of All. So he sings the song to the starkeeper. And then he's like, if he sets things right, then he can go to heaven. And this is, he, he sets it right by doing practically nothing. He attends the graduation, but he's invisible. And while the country doctor has given the real wisdom, he's saying, don't be held back by the failure of your parents. Uh, don't be scared of people not liking you. You just try liking them. He stands near Louise and says, listen to him. Believe him. Even though she looked like she was already listening, And then he sidles over to Julie and he's like, hey, Julie, I love you. I've always loved you.
0: And that gets him into heaven. As
1: if shitty, dumb men who hit their wives, they never say that they love them after hitting them. It's fucking bad. Anyway, God. Billy's outfits in the movies, at least, are pretty... (laughs) fire to quote the kids these days they were originally they originally cast frank sinatra in the role of billy um which uh you know would have sucked but billy sucks so you know having an asshole play an asshole would have been fine i guess the mob is gonna murder me for saying sinatra is an asshole but here's an example of sinatra being an asshole he recorded all of the songs that they're gonna overdub for the movie but then they said they need to do takes they need to do two complete takes of every scene one for Cinemascope and one for Cinemascope 55. I don't know what that means. But he, the, the, the legend is he said, no, I'm you paying me for one movie. I'm not going to do two movies unless you want to pay me for two movies. And so he, they, he left. However, Shirley Jones, his co-star, or his would-be co-star, who played Julie, she said in her autobiography that the real story is that he was dating Ava Gardner at the time. And Ava Gardner said, you need to come hang out with me on my film set or I'll cheat on you. she threatened infidelity which um i don't know i think frank sinatra because it's similar with rosemary's baby where he told uh what's her name mia farrow who he was married to he's like i'm gonna divorce you if you don't quit this movie and hang out with me on the set of my movie and he divorced her i think that frank sinatra needs to go to sex and love acts anonymous because he's letting these uh Anyway, you get my point? That's uh, it's a little pathological there, what you're doing, Sinatra. The main backdrop in the movie is beautiful. I love the sea. I, I, I missed my uh, calling as a fisherman. I love that soliloquy is on a beach. The beach looks suspiciously like Southern California, and that's because it is. It's Paradise Cove in Malibu. I always assumed that a beach with a cove like that is Leo Carrillo, which was uh, my favorite beach uh, or camping beach when I was growing up. And it's not far off. It's like 10 miles down the coast from there, but it's closer to Point Dune. Uh, Matthew McConaughey lived in a trailer there famously. It's like luxury uh, campers. uh, Paradise Cove, Malibu. Another pre-internet lie that I was told is that Gordon McRae is way shorter than all his lady co-stars. He is kind of short for a dude. He's 5'8", but Shirley Jones is 5'5", so that was easy to debunk. So yeah, and at least in the movie, like he doesn't need to set things right to get a ticket into heaven. He's still just in this asshole, uh, like this, um, you know, middle place where he's polishing stars. (laughs) But uh, he gets one day to go down. He gets a little, uh, you know, leave. He gets a furlough to go say hi to his family. Final thoughts on Carousel. This kind of shit should be stopped. In all seriousness, I don't want to sound again. I don't want to signal here, but I felt angry watching this. And I know that there, there, there's not likely to be an uptick in domestic violence as a result of people in 2023 rewatching Carousel, but it pisses me off to think of people watching this in the 40s and 50s and thinking the, that it's okay to hit women, or that it's... Like, the musical does say that it's not okay, and that it's a shitty thing that he does it, but it still... He is excused, um, and we are kind of supposed to love him, and God damn it, I don't love him. Especially when... I don't know... The alternative to being Billy is being an empty-headed piece of shit singing about lobsters and clams your whole life. Or being Jigger Cragen. Anyway, (sighs) made it in under two hours again. I'm getting good at this. This podcast is over. Let me come up with a line real quick. Okay, this was a real long podcast. I talked a lot of shit. My fair lady's a smash, and carousel's trash, and now I really should quit. Okay, Uh, they can't all be gems. Very few of them are. Last week's was the first one that actually worked out. Thank you for listening, and until next time, throw up a rumpus, but don't lose the compass.